this morning as we continue in worship together, we read our scripture from the Gospel of Mark. This is excerpts from chapter 14. Hear these words. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to them and he said, take this, my body. And he also took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Anybody expecting Jack Bauer to come out uh, now? And if you haven't seen the show 24, where they have just one hour of each episode's one hour, and it kind of traces through an entire day. We're not going to do it that specifically, but we are going to be looking at the events of the last 24 hours of Jesus's life, starting with the Last Supper, going into crucifixion, and then we'll extend it a little bit longer than 24 hours to go into resurrection, um, because we obviously, that is the reason we're here. We know that happens, and that is the real culmination of the story, but it starts here in the Last Supper, in this meal that Jesus has with his uh, disciples, more than the 12, most likely. We assume that Joanna and Mary and various others were there as well in the upper room as they gathered together. And here's the thing about Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, in that um, the population, according to modern estimates by scholars like Amy Jo Levine and others, was estimated to be around 50 to 70,000 um, inhabitants in the city of Jerusalem on any given day. But on the festival of unleavened bread or Passover, that population, according to the Jewish historian Josephus of the first, uh, first century, uh, said that it would rise up to two million people, uh, which is a huge gap, which is a huge jump, which means that the meal that Jesus was having in what we now know as the Last Supper wasn't very unique. It was being had by millions of people all in the same place, all at the same time. Now, the other thing about this meal is that we conceivably could have, uh, people could have conceivably been eating it for 1,300 years before Jesus uh, ever set the Last Supper for his disciples. In Exodus 12 is the story of the Passover. It is the story of Jewish liberation, the Hebrew liberation from uh, Egypt and the slavery and bondage they experienced there to the promised land. And in Exodus 12, it starts talking about the Passover, when the angel of death would go through Egypt and they took the blood of the lamb and put it on, their, on the doorposts, um, knowing that that home had been redeemed. And that the angel of death could pass over and that the home inside did not fear death anymore and death could pass over and we could find freedom from that. And in Exodus 12, it goes on to talk about uh, in verse 24, you shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. You shall always sacrifice this lamb. You shall always eat this meal. You shall always remember this day of Passover. Uh, that uh, you shall always remember this moment. Now, again, modern scholars would go back and look at textual evidence and archaeological evidence and say that um, some of these uh, passages might have been 
written a little later and inserted in, edited into that story, but there is evidence to say that the Passover meal, the Seder meal, uh, had been eaten for at least 500 years before Jesus sat in that upper room with his disciples. And even at 500 years compared to 1,300 years, that is still multiple generation after generation after generation of saying, do we really have to go to grandma's and eat the haroset again, you know, after, again and again and again? So Jesus' meal is not just not unique. It's also not uncommon. It's been done before. And think of all the Jewish people that have celebrated Passover and eaten the Seder since Jesus had that Last Supper. And think of all the Christians who have celebrated that same spirit of God's liberating freedom through every time that we uh, take communion during monthly or weekly gatherings all around the world and celebrate God's presence with us and God's deliverance from slavery to sin and death, as we say in our liturgy. This meal is not unique, and, and perhaps that's what's so awesome about it. Rabbi Amy Katz up in Kansas City talks about the Passover meal and says, it's the same thing every year, which is powerful. Because every year I sit down at the table and I'm a slave. But after the liturgy and after the prayers and after the wine and after the lamb and after the meal, I'm free again. And it's important, you know, they have these great rituals in Judaism, Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement and various other things outlined in the Old Testament to where they are intentional, conscious actions of repentance and renewal to where we can admit that we are slaves to sin and death. We can admit that we are still under the guise of the law and still under uh, systems of oppression. In fact, we may even be the perpetrators of some of those sins, but we can go and we can be repented and we can, or we can repent and we can be cleansed of that. We can start to live anew again. And we've kind of decided that in feel-good suburban Christianity that we don't always like to do those things. Maybe that's where Jesus is so revolutionary, why the Last Supper is, in fact, something that is so revolutionary compared to the other satyrs that have happened for years and across generations, is that it's what Jesus chooses to lift up in the meal. The highlight of the Seder meal would have been the lamb, and that's the same lamb that they, they sacrifice in commemoration of the blood on the doorpost that they pass over, that is the, the semblance of God's freedom through, uh, and we would say the blood of Christ, but the blood that is sacrificed in the lamb that is freedom offered to the Jewish people. That is the culmination of the meal, as a highlight. It's the only succulent food on the table that really tastes great, in my opinion, at least. And, uh, and this is not anything that Jesus talks about. If you read the Gospel of John, John um, reorchestrates the timeline of the last events of Jesus's life to make it to where Jesus dies at three o'clock on Monday Thursday, which is when the Seder lamb would have been slain. Um, so John has one schedule to make a theological point that Jesus is this continuation of what God is already doing. That God has already freed people, that God is freeing people, that God will free people in the future. But if you look even at John and his in his uh, twisted or reconfigured outline, Matthew, Mark, Luke, when they get to the last meal of Jesus, they never actually talk about the lamb that everyone would be excited about. They lift up two other really ordinary elements like Pastor Katrina was talking about, the bread and the wine. 
And the bread is not ordinary bread, and I still hold that Jesus would have been a lot happier if King's Hawaiian had existed back then, and they would have had that sweet taste. But, but it was matzah. It was unleavened bread. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is what it's called. It was matzah. It represented their quick departure from Egypt to go to the Promised Land, but it still wasn't that uncommon on an everyday basis. They would eat bread as a staple, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and, and water wasn't very purified back then. So at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they're having wine that wasn't near as strong as wine is today. And so they had these common elements that Jesus lifted up as opposed to the major feast of the Lamb. And in doing so, Jesus took the story of God's redemption, this everyday story, or he took the story of God's redemption away from this major event in Exodus, and made it into an everyday experience for the, all of us. By doing this, Jesus takes this story and, and makes it common. Makes it something that we can engage in every day. Makes it something that's on our table every time we sit to eat and remember and take part in God's nourishment. That no longer is God's freedom just about this one event where we escape a system of oppression. But Jesus looks at what's behind that system. Right? Systems of oppression, cultures don't uh, establish in a moment. Like some middle school kid doesn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to be a bully today. But there are things that happen in that kid's life to where it builds and builds and builds to where that is who they become. Tyrannical government, systems, cultures, those things form in daily choices and daily uh, concessions and daily uh, activities that eventually form into what we know as normal or what we perceive to see right in front of us. And so when we're celebrating this moment in the Exodus, it is a phenomenal moment of God's power and glory and nourishment as they receive manna and water in the wilderness. It is this phenomenal story. And, and sometimes I think we look at that story and say, well, that was back then. So Jesus, instead of lifting up the lamb of Exodus, lifts up the bread and the wine where they would have eaten that at breakfast and lunch that day. And says that this phenomenal, radical, revolutionary love of God is really here all the time. It's really ordinary. And it's available for you in this moment. So really the only thing Jesus does is remind us that this isn't the last meal. Reminds us that this meal and this story has been ongoing and it's powerful that it's been ongoing. It is exceptional and it is glorious that it's nothing new because it's a reminding, it's a reminding for all of us who, who sit and eat that every time we eat, we're filled. Every time we eat, we're reminded of God's nourishment. Every time we eat, we remember to repent and to believe and to go forward with the gospel message, leaving behind the sin of Egypt in the past. We don't want to go back to Egypt, and so we remember every meal that there's something better for us, and we choose with every bread that we eat, every wine that we drink, every juice that we sip, we choose to be a part of Christ. We choose to be a part of God's continuing story of freedom for all people. And one of my favorite stories that has come out of the pandemic and all the tragedy and all the terror that has come out of this, you know, the last year, there's also been, you know, bright spots of God working in human ingenuity together. And, and one of my favorite stories is, uh, it was told to me by uh, Kimberly Partain, actually, who's, who's right over here. Um, Kimberly, I don't know if she posted it on Facebook or she told me about it directly, but... 
Um, when we started the, uh, when we started doing virtual worship, just to let you behind the scenes a little bit, um, there, theologically, when we serve communion, um, sacramental theology in the United States Church espouses that we should be gathered, it should be open to everybody. So we should be in the gathered community. So we really only do worship as a gathered, uh, in the gathered community together here on Sunday. And so there was conversation amongst our uh, colleagues about, well, is it okay to offer people virtual communion because we're not actually there. We're not actually handing it to anybody. We're not all together in this moment. But communion is something that we, you know, many of us who grew up in the church and even people who are new to church uh, have done about a zillion times. And it's a regular practice where we at least do it once a month and some traditions do it every single week. So we're used to it. People set their watches to it. And when we would move communion from a uh, a first, month, uh, first Sunday of the month practice to a second Sunday of the month practice, people leave here questioning, well, what went, what, what went wrong today? Right? It, w- it was common, but what did we need in the midst of a world that was getting turned upside down and, and uncommon and tragic? We needed something normal. We needed something we could set our watches to. And so just, I hope the bishop isn't watching, but we started serving communion about five to six months before everybody was allowed to serve communion virtually. So don't tell the bishop, um, because I like being here, and I like y'all. So so we made that choice because we knew it would be connecting, we knew it would be redemptive, and then the question became, well, not everybody keeps a stock of King's Hawaiian bread on in their fridge um, every day. Or not even, not everyone has the, the consecrated juice of Welch's that is the prototypical Methodist juice, right? Now, there were people who, when they went to the grocery store, they actually went and bought King's Hawaiian so Jesus would be truly in their house. Um, but, but we started saying, well, you know, it's, it's not about the things you eat. It's, it's about Jesus' presence in those things. And so we said, just find a solid and a liquid, right, that you can dip together, you can take together. This is the body, and this is the blood. And so some people had pancakes and syrup, and, and other people had you know, the Coke that they had drunk the night before, you know, something like that. And, and I joked about, the, when I took communion uh, first time in college, um, we had a campus minister who would like to challenge us to think beyond the ritual to what the ritual is about. So the first time I ever took communion in college was with Oreos and milk and, uh, and challenged what those, what those elements really meant. So I had thrown out, you know, if you've got Oreos and milk, go for it. Um, well, sure enough, Kimberly and her family took communion with Oreos and milk. And what more sweet way of expressing Jesus than you have in an Oreo? I mean, you just salivate when you hear the word. Um, so they took communion, but then it was like on a Wednesday, I think, if I'm telling the story right. It was like on a Wednesday, they were eating lunch or having a snack, and, and her four-year-old, Carter, uh, had eaten his Oreo. And, and everyone loves Oreos, or at least I think everyone loves Oreos. And, um, and, and Kimberly walked away and maybe was doing dishes or something like that, and Carter said, Mommy, I want more Jesus. And if a four-year-old can recognize God's presence through the Oreo that had been sacramentalized on Sunday morning, but is still there on Wednesday afternoon, because he was nourished over and over again, something that we would just have in the house, we recognize as the gift from God that it is. You see the genius of Jesus' move. You see the genius that every time we eat the bread, we dip the Oreo, we sip the juice, we have the glass of wine, we are reminded that we are part of an ongoing story of freedom. 
We are part of an ongoing story of liberation that is not simply just about one group at one time or even one system, but it is about liberation from the sin that causes those systems and the sin that causes those acts of slavery. It is the sin that we all deal with and we all struggle with to continuously choose to abide in God's grace and abide in God's love and realize that we are redeemed. And I've mentioned this over and over and over again. How would our actions look? What would our choices be like if we weren't so afraid of not living up to expectations? If we weren't afraid of death? If we weren't afraid of being measured against each other? What would our choices look like if they were centered in love? If they were centered in the knowledge that we are okay because we are redeemed in God? There is no one who is out of the reach of the grace of God. What would our choices look like if we weren't afraid anymore? And I truly believe that our world would look different. And it's a reminder each and every time we eat that this wasn't the last meal, but it was a supper meant to continue to every dinner table throughout eternity. As Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I dine with you in eternity. Well, guess what? We are living in the midst of God's eternal love. And there's a really cool setup on the altar. I asked Molly Trank, she is our director of adult ministries here, and she's really good at hosting parties. Uh, and so I said, hey, can you make the altar look like a dinner table? And, and she said, yeah, gratefully. There's a little more flowers than I would have chosen um, on here, but it looks really great. And, and she put her grandmother's plates down here. Uh, her grandmother who has passed into glory to remember that through Jesus, through this meal, we dine with the saints in heaven. And her daughter made little place cards on each uh, plate of the Trank family to remember that we are called by name from God. Say, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've thought, you're welcome because I love you. And I think it's powerful to note that when Jesus did sit down to this Passover meal to celebrate freedom and liberation for all people, celebrate freedom from sin and death. But perhaps over on this side, it was actually a U-shaped table, perhaps on this side was James the Less. If you don't know who James the Less is, it's because nobody knows who James the Less is. His name literally has the Less in it compared to the other James. Nobody cared about James. James didn't make the Bible a whole lot except for the fact that he was a disciple and yet he was invited to the table because to God he mattered. And then there's this part in the gospel story where it talks about, where Jesus says, the one whom I dip in the same bowl with will betray me. Which means that Judas was sitting right next to Jesus. And it's a reminder that no matter how bad you feel about yourself, no matter how many mistakes you may have made, no matter how inadequate or unworthy you feel, in somebody else's presence, or perhaps even in God's. There is no one that is not allowed to come sit at the table of Jesus. And your name is by a plate. Because you are part of an everyday story of grace. You are part of an everyday ordinary love. God's love is not an exceptional event that parts waters so you can walk through every day 
God's love is an ordinary love that tells you that you are forgiven every day so that you can make it to the other side. So when we go eat our donuts, or perhaps you already eat your, don- your donuts today, when we go to brunch, when we go to lunch, when you have your afternoon snack, whatever it may be, you can have those ordinary foods and recognize that there is nowhere, nobody, that God is not saying, you're forgiven and I love you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can sit at your meal always because it was not truly the Last Supper but a supper that continues through us, a supper that continues into eternity, a supper we are invited by name to sit and dine next to you no matter who we are, what we've done, or what we have thought about ourselves, no matter what other people think about us. We sit here because you have said that you love us. So help us to remember, God, with every snack that we eat, with every sip that we drink, with every moment of delight and nourishment around our tables with every snack in the car. Help us to remember that we are called to uh, abide in your grace more than anything else, Lord, and help us also to remember to repent of those times when we have denied people a seat at the table. Help us to repent, Lord, when we have even denied ourselves a seat at the table. And move in us again May your bread and may your wine fill us up. May your body and your blood fill us up so that we might be the body and blood for the world, that we might show others the path to redemption, that we might help others find their freedom, and we might open up our table, make a longer table through us so that people might come meet you and they might come to hear your message that they are loved as well. And that one day we will all dine together. Because this is the meal that never ends. It's ordinary. God, help us to make it more present then in everyone's life. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.